Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. For you in the listening audience, if you want to watch a live Fury Theory Podcast, we would be delighted to have you. Just email me at jfury at EFB Advocacy. Big week in Washington despite it being a recess week. So let's get right to the theories. Theory one, Donald Trump promised to make the American economy great again when he ran for president, and the latest employment numbers in June seem to prove he is on the right track. Today, the Labor Department said that 222,000 new jobs were created in June, far exceeding all expectations. My theory on this is that despite President Trump's anemic poll numbers, the better economic numbers will give him momentum as he works with congressional leaders for, to replace Obamacare and get tax reform through the Congress. Uh, John Easton, what are your thoughts? Does this give him the momentum he needs to get his legislative agenda through? I think that it does. I think that he rises and falls, like most presidents, with economic numbers. I think that he needs to be careful on how he characterizes what is a, a good report. In fact, I heard this morning various pundits saying, oh, this is a good week for the White House. But take a small victory lap, but I think it's even more important for him to message correctly on this. I think he needs to say, hey, this is a good start. This is a resurgence of the American engine. And I think, but he also needs to say, but it's not reaching everybody yet, and we're going to make sure that it does. And that, that means he's going to broaden his appeal a little bit more than just to his base, which clearly is all he has at this moment. Now, Adam, thinking about this uh Better economy usually means people are in a better mood, but a lot of these members of Congress are going back to their town hall meetings, meeting with their constituents, and they still have this big albatross called the health care bill hanging around them. Um, thinking about this, do you think this helps members kind of make the point that we got to do something about health care, but the economy is improving, so trust me more? It is, it is this interesting amalgam of I inherited a mess, but some things are going well, and I want to own the things that are going well, disassociate myself from the things that weren't mine that aren't going well. These numbers are very positive, and it's almost as though it is a taste of what we could be having more of if we could get our act together. So in that way, John, I think that it is a very beneficial sign for members of Congress uh, and I think in general, uh, consumer confidence is going to continue to tick up. The, the, the reality is that uh, what we've seen on Wall Street is starting to flicker a bit. Uh, there is less confidence that we're going to see the changes needed to sustain what, what, what pundits often say is baked into the market. They're anticipating tax reform. They anticipate um, the health care exchanges to be able to be righted to some extent. There's a lot riding still on what's going on, but I think the president should take some measure of confidence from what's just been reported today. And like John, John Easton says, we need to, to, to message on it in a way that brings people into this tent and, 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 and shares the process of, of economic growth and not defining it only for those at the top. You know, you talk about the... Uh stock market kind of flickering a bit with these job numbers. And sometimes when you get these job numbers go like gangbusters, people are worried about what the Federal Reserve is going to do. And so that's why the stock market kind of has some, some concerns. You know, and it's all hard to predict what the future is going to be. But, Chris Brown, thinking about this, how much credit does Donald Trump actually 
deserve for this, and how much is just the economy going outside the normal political nonsense? It's not like Trump has really got a whole lot done through the legislative process. It also hasn't been long enough. You know, these economic numbers are always a lagging indicator. He's only been in office for six and a half months. Anything that started this process happened long ago. I think we're going to continue to see gangbusters economic growth, whether the president does anything or not. Uh, and I think it's okay for him to take credit. You know, we're looking at 21,500 on the Dow. That's a tremendous number. And certainly the enthusiasm that he brings to this job and our economy are helping that. You know, thinking about um, this president's going to claim victory for anything that's good and blame Obama for anything is bad, which is kind of what you're supposed to do if you're president. Anything that happened, I mean, he says he inherited a mess, John Easton, um, and now this economy is going better. Uh, we were saying earlier this year that um, if we don't get the tax reform bill done, uh, the economy is going to lag. Uh, how does President Trump kind of square the circle? Is it a big mess? Are things on the right track? Do we, does this in, make us need to do more to keep the economy growing? I mean, you know, how do you square this all together? For one thing, I think that he shouldn't say what he said this morning, which was, everybody's getting rich but me off this great <laughs> stock market, but that's okay. I'm not so sure he's, uh, he's very poorly in this, uh, in this hot stock market. I do believe that that it's, I think that the pundits overstate how important it is for big legislative victories because I do think that what he is doing with regulations is helping to drive a positive economy, some positive accomplishments. But I think that he's got to nail a, a, a significant legislative victory. And I think that, as we talked about last week, that the health care is, is where it starts. I think a health care victory is where it starts. It does pave the way for tax reform. And I think he could get some of both. I don't think he has to get a full loaf on both of them, but I think he needs to get some of both, and it'd be really important for not only his administration and Congress, but for the American people. I would, on health care, I'll only say this for uh, quickly, uh, Mitch McConnell said yesterday that we might, you know, if we can't get this big bill through, we might have to just do something to stabilize the exchanges, and that got Chuck Schumer all excited because that makes him part of the process. I mean, we, we, you know, it seems McConnell is kind of pointing to a possible, if this thing collapses in the Senate from the Republican side, a bipartisan solution. You know, what happens then to the House? Does the House pick it up and pass it? But, you know, the fact is that Republicans are governing now, and they have to do something about these insurance exchanges, just saying, hey, let's this all collapse and, and not worry about it. They have to worry about it. Adam Belmar, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that that is the, the most important thing that regular Americans are worrying about out there. They know, too, that these exchanges are unbalanced, that they are falling apart, that we have major insurers leaving marketplaces and people who will be left in the lurch. And responsible leadership means we've got to try and help these people and get this thing propped up. You might not have made the mess, but you still are looking at it, and it is important in a leadership role to step in and do something. And uh, that is what people who are on Medicaid are thinking about. It is what governors are dealing with. And I think that when we're doing the people's business in a bipartisan way, uh, we're going to see some positive impacts for folks. And quite frankly, it's, it's hard to imagine at this point with a Republican Party in both chambers that's at a bit in disarray, us being able to get uh, legislative victories without a bipartisan effort, and that seems to be where we're landing. And Chris Brown, you know, I think about 
what might have been had the Republicans started with a infrastructure slash tax package uh, and gotten that through the Congress and then try to fix health care later, how much stronger position that uh, Trump would be in and a much stronger bipartisan position because how do Democrats say, I don't want to improve infrastructure in this country? Even you know, if you look at, and it's actually very interesting because you have um, uh, Rahm Emanuel, whose city of Chicago is going down the tubes, but whose uh, uh, infrastructure works pretty well. The, the uh, L works really well. And you have the metro in Washington and in New York, which are basically collapsing. I mean, this is, this is the perfect time to do something on infrastructure. Instead, we're focused on health care in, in the Congress. I'm very proud that the Washington metro is in much better shape than the New York City subway is to, <laughs> to begin with. And yeah, the, the L does run very well. You know, the, the trains run on time in Rom Chicago. When you talk about an infrastructure package, I think it is widely acknowledged that anything that we would have done would have been tied not maybe to tax reform more broadly, but certainly to a repatriation deal, right? So you would have brought in three or four, maybe $500 billion in new tax revenues to pay for this. We have shovel-ready jobs, and we fix our freeways for free. So that would have been great. It would have been fantastic. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we didn't do that. So we need to move forward now. Healthcare is broken, and it's time to fix it. One last thing on, on this subject, on the economy. Uh, Steve Bannon has let it be known that he is more than happy to raise taxes on the very, very wealthy, uh, up to 40% on the very rich. And Senate Republicans are actually thinking about not touching the Obamacare tax on investment, um, which is something that the only thing that the conservatives really want out of this health care bill. Um, Do you see, John Easton, that Republicans are going to follow Steve Bannon on the shift on being okay with raising taxes on the very wealthy. Uh, I've, my own personal view is uh, we are now a populist party, and the idea of raising taxes on the very wealthy is something that uh, is actually very popular, has been very popular for a long time. But you know, Republicans don't really want to go to their donors and say, yeah, we're going to raise your taxes. Um, so what, just, just kind of quickly, what are your thoughts on, on this kind of shift by Steve Bannon? Will anyone else join him? I think it's less a, a question about whether they follow Steve Bannon or, or whether they want to confront their donors. I don't think that's the question. I think the question is, philosophically, are they able to stomach a tax increase like this? I think with this this tax that came along with Obamacare, tax on the wealthy, Republicans don't think it should have been there in the first place. So now to, to say, well, you know, should we keep it in there or should we repeal it? I think, I think most Republicans, particularly in the Senate, I'm sure in the House, fundamentally disagree with that tax in the first place. So I think they're not going to agree with, uh, with keeping it in there. They, they might have to or maybe part of it, but I don't think they are philosophically aligned with that policy whatsoever. Yeah, I think you're probably right, and I think that's a little bit of a – I've talked to people at the White House, and they say that President Trump is more than happy to raise taxes on the very wealthy because he knows all these cats. They don't like him. He doesn't like them, and they don't seem to care that much. Um, the very, very wealthy. Now – you know, it's, it all goes to how you define, define very wealthy. If you're talking to someone who makes more than $200,000 is very wealthy, and that is how the Democrats traditionally define the very wealthy. I mean, that's not very wealthy. That's people who are in the middle class, especially in Washington, D.C. And I think Republicans, you know, they do not want to be seen as a party that raises taxes. And they will get hammered by their not only their donors, but also the ideological groups. And so this is kind of tricky territory for the Republicans. Theory two. 
Trump's triumphant in Poland. The president gave one of his best speeches yesterday in Warsaw, calling on the West to defend its values and calling out Russia for destabilizing its neighbors. Today, President Trump met with Vladimir Putin in Hamburg, a city that has been ravaged by left-wing protesters, up to 100,000 protesters. Interestingly, these protesters protesters are not protesting Donald Trump, but civilization itself, and especially all these big G20, you know, political bureaucrats that are coming and descending on their city. My theory is that President Trump exceeds expectations when he takes these foreign trips and not only looks presidential, he looks competent. Adam Belmar, you are a presidential watcher having worked for George W. Bush in the White House. How do you think that President Trump is doing? Well, I've been watching this trip very carefully, and I, I want to applaud the folks at the White House. They have put on... Uh, a well-mapped show uh, for this road show. The president and the first lady, it's wonderful to see her at his side. She looks magnificent. She's great for our country. And when they arrived in Poland, which was a bold choice for the first stop, the president engaged in his first international press conference of his presidency, and he got almost all the way through it. And then he decided that he was going to throw us a Trump curveball, and he called on Hallie Jackson from NBC, and it devolved into a uh, bit of a food fight about the CIA, about Russia, about the election. But you know what? In Trump's way, he set the table for the meeting with Putin today in a pretty decent fashion, and then he went on to give what I thought was, for him, a really excellent speech um, to the, the people of Poland, it was the Trump doctrine. It was a little bit more about the importance of Europe, about all of civilization in the developed world standing up against the threat of terrorism. I'm very, very positive about what the president has done. Now, when you, when you break it down to the optics of what we're seeing today, and it is going on today as we're taping this Fury Theory podcast, the president has met with uh, Vladimir Putin. The first time we see them, they're seated in a very typical bilateral meeting setting. The disparity in the height and the size between the two men is diminished because they're sitting. Vladimir Putin is outstanding at at coming across as being aloof. He wouldn't really make eye contact with the boss. And the translators were doing their thing, and they were sort of nodding. But, you know, like the president is sort of coming into his own. I think that this is, as you say, John, a a wonderful opportunity for the president to look presidential. He's making a lot of progress in, 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 in delivering his messages to the people of Europe and holding NATO's feet to the fire on participation and cost-bearing issues. And even as we see all of the things developing in North Korea, the threat there, uh, we see the president really beginning to be presidential. The only thing I have a problem with this president, and I think it's just i got to get used to it, is when he starts to ad-lib. He just will fly off the script at very weird times and places that he has no right to ad-lib. Um, and it usually doesn't work out very well for him. But uh, two big, enthusiastic Siskel and Eber thumbs up for the president on his trip. So, John Easton, um, you know, the, the Democrats like to say that, uh, that Vladimir Putin placed Donald Trump on the American throne because they, they, he wanted a vassal. 
and that that was the whole point of the de destabilizing the um, the American election. This is all part of Vladimir Putin's kind of game plan. Um, and so it's, it's hard for me to square that. It's hard for me to figure out. Okay, so you got Putin's got Trump, but Trump is not someone that you can really predict. We have no idea what he's going to do next. To Adam's point, he says things at the most inopportune moments, um, and you know he's kind of blamed the Russians for destabilizing in his speech. But he also said, you know, they might not have uh, been the only superpower or the only power to try to uh, get involved in the American election. Um, and he also, Trump also kind of criticized um, the American intelligence agencies again. On, on Absolutely. He, he decided to take the international perch to bash this. Brought to you by the same guys who said we had weapons, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Yeah. Um, so, John, looking at this, how does this play uh, for uh, President Trump? And is he really a stooge for uh, Vladimir Putin? It just doesn't seem like the American public is going to buy that line. I don't think that he has done anything to substantiate that whatsoever. But I, I think what's fascinating, and, and it is fascinating watching him travel abroad. And I, I think if you look, there's a dichotomy in, in President Trump's persona overseas. If you look at it, we all know that this is a, this is a man who is, his, his need for approval and for flattery knows no bounds. But when you, when you see him travel, he goes overseas and his messages are stark and they tend to rattle some of our allies and their constituents. So if, 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 you, if you look at, at presidents, Obama certainly, but other presidents, when they go abroad, I mean, if you want to get approval, you want to be popular overseas, you take a soft tone, you're accommodating. He is taking a tone of, of economic nationalism, getting tougher on immigration, getting tougher on radical Islam, all these things that he is not afraid to say, and he's not afraid to say in very black and white terms. That's very Reagan-esque, and, and I don't know if he's going to become uh, Reagan on the, na on the international stage, but so far, he has taken that tact, and it's really, really interesting to watch. It's actually impressive to watch. I think it is pretty impressive to watch. Chris Brown, thinking about the uh, president and his uh, his image, the fact that he likes to take risks, but also there are some fundamental things that the president is not doing correctly. For example, um, they didn't get a hotel room in Hamburg. Um, and let's talk a little bit about what's going on in Hamburg and all these protesters and how Trump's kind of call for s s uh, Western civilization. And I was kind of being overwhelmed by a bunch of knuckleheads who were all dressed in black who are protesting and lighting fires and and then you got President Trump who can't find a hotel room in Hamburg. What are your thoughts on this whole thing? Well, it's certainly embarrassing that nobody called uh, Priceline to get him a room on the way. <laughs> uh, look, Germany, Poland, uh, other places are so far ahead of the United States when it comes to facing the migrancy crisis in the eye. Uh, we haven't seen it here, but they are seeing the kind of people that are coming from Syria and other places and the kinds of atrocities that those people are committing. We haven't seen it yet here. They see it there. And President Trump, I think, is tapping into that. He is not tremendously popular over there yet, but I think that's going to change. I saw uh, poll numbers where President Obama is, still has an approval rating of 80 percent in Germany. Uh, President Trump's approval ratings are about 25 in Germany. The only place where President Trump has actually got high approval ratings are two places, Israel and Russia, interestingly. 
Um, and I think that in Israel they like him because he's been very strong. I've been a very good fan of, uh, and I think a great contrast to President Obama, who really kind of threw um, Israel under the bus on a continual basis. Um, so thinking about Trump and thinking about his lack of approval ratings, does that matter? Does it matter that the Germans don't really love President Trump, but they, for example, to, to John Easton's earlier point, they didn't really love Ronald Reagan either. Do you think it matters? I don't think it matters. I think that unpopular leaders travel all over the place. I think that Erdogan is not particularly popular here and didn't stop him from coming. Uh, it doesn't really matter. He's not the president of Europe. He's the president of America. And that was the joke we always used to make about President Obama, is that he was president of the world, but he wasn't particularly a good president of the United States. Uh, any other thoughts on, on the, this Russian <clears throat> The only thing I would say, just as an aside, is that the amount of energy and time and preparation that goes into a G20 summit is enormous. I've been involved in these things. I've also been involved in ad hoc world leader summits. For us and for this White House that has just not gotten everything uh, together uh, in the way that the, the previous administration has, they clearly didn't have their ducks in a row for getting set up for this G20. But I, I also think it's important to realize that there are a limited number of hotels, that these are taken en masse by delegations, and that I assure you the President of the United States is well accommodated and safe. And while there may be a couple of doubling up situations for staff, there's no reason to worry about whether the Donald is, is, is being taken care of in, in Germany. Although these protests were so intense, Melania couldn't get out of her hotel room. Um, to this this morning. So this is a real real situation. Yeah, I don't mean to diminish that. I just say that uh, the 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 greatest power on the face of the earth can find a roof to put over our leader's head. Theory three: North Korean hot potato. So the North Koreans successfully launched an ICBM type of missile that theoretically could reach America's shores and could definitely reach Japan. There are no good answers here. Decapitating the North Korean regime seems pretty risky to me, and also, in the process, destroys South Korea. The Chinese are of no help and seem to be pleased to let the North Koreans do what they're going to do to arm themselves with nuclear weapons. My theory here is the best-case scenario is that we avoid a hot war. Our diplomacy needs to take it down a few notches. Uh, we don't have any good answers here, so let's not try to get to an answer, maybe kick the can down to another administration. Um, Chris Brown, thinking about how President Trump is handling this situation, do you think that the president is handling right by being bellicose, or do you think this is something that could kind of spin out of control and cause problems for us in the long term? I think that there's no question who's in charge here. President Trump is building a strong coalition between uh, South Korea, obviously the bromance with Shinzo Abe. Uh, we're going to be able to influence China significantly through economic means and other means in order to put pressure on pressure on their ally, uh, North Korea. I don't think it's helpful to be tweeting, does this guy have anything better to do with his life? Uh, I think that that's not how you handle a potential nuclear situation on the Korean Peninsula. But there's no doubt, President Trump is running the show here. John Easton, President Trump running the show? He's running the show, and, and I think that we are going to have to have major discussions with our allies, Japan and, and South Korea, about how to maintain the greatest deterrence. If, and that may mean uh, more nukes in Japan. It may mean more nukes in South Korea, maybe tactical nuclear weapons 
who knows? I know those, those used to exist. They may again. But I, th- I think as we have our discussions with China, we have our discussions with our allies, those are great, but those take so long to, to yield any fruit. What we have to do in the meantime is, is all about missile defense. We have to crank up the technology. We have to make more investments. We have to make sure that in Alaska and California and e- eventually on the East Coast that we have very dependable missile defense uh, for our nation, but also missile defense uh, in Europe as well. This is the, and, and of course in the in, in Asia. This is the way that we are going to put North Korea in the place where it should be. Play 3D chess with me for a second. So, is this President Trump's attempt to turn up the heat, make everybody aware of the North Korean threat, make those investments in missile defense, and make Japan pay for it? Could be. Yeah, that could be. I, I don't think he has thought that many steps ahead, but I do think that. This is just yet whether it's, it was Iran. I mean, Iran used to be the, the uh, country uh, du jour where we are talking about constantly, we are having this negotiation with. Uh, but now it's North Korea. We've forgotten about, about Iran, but Iran has technology that we were worried about only a year ago. And now we're worried about North Korea. The bottom line is that, that this country, we have to, given these threats, we just have to make, be making these investments. Now, that is one of the things that President Obama was able to do was secure some sort of deal, no matter how unpopular, with the Iranians. And the Iranian regime is not nearly as crazy, batshit crazy, as the North Korean regime. Uh, Adam Belmar, the missile defense, we've done some work on missile defense stuff. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, do we need to have more investment in missile defense? And does it work? Well, you know, this is an incredibly dangerous game. I don't think it can be overstated. Uh, what's been going on. And and I just want to point out, uh, some of the cable networks have done a not particularly good job of helping people appreciate the substance of what occurred this week. We have a missile that was brought forward on the back of a mobile launcher. It was not deployed by one. It was stood up and deployed in a conventional sense. It was an intercontinental ballistic missile with a greater range than any ever before test flown by the North Koreans. It is unclear what their ability is to arm said missile with a nuclear warhead at the top, so there are still questions there. But this provocation, and that's exactly what it is, is remarkable, and it poses a threat not just to us, but as others have said, to all of our allies. Juxtapose this with yesterday's speech by the President of the United States in Warsaw, where the President announced a major purchase of the Patriot missile system from Raytheon by the Poles. We, he has been selling American defense uh, to our allies and getting reinvestment from folks on that. All of this is critically important. Missile defense is, is hugely important. Does it really work? God, I hope we never, ever have to find out. They're testing it. We can't test it enough. But as these threats grow, our best defense is exactly this, and we have to follow it. But I will say one last thing. I agree with the theory theory that we do not want to have a hot war here. But I do honestly believe that the president needs to continue to meet rhetoric and provocation at every turn with strength and let them know that what they are up to will ultimately lead to their own demise. Chris Brown, I'm actually fascinated what you said about having the Japanese pay for missile defense. They don't really pay for a lot in, in their defense. Their constitution makes it 
makes their spending much lower than our spending on defense. Uh, same with the Germans. Uh, these are big economies that we built up after the Second World War. Uh, and, you know, they need to pay their fair share, which is something that President Trump, um, you know, has been as part of his whole theory. It was right? a key campaign promise, especially on the Japanese front. You know, we've, we've done tremendous work in defending uh, those islands. And we did it for many reasons, but including the fact that they are a very close ally. And we basically told them we're not allowed to have a navy. So <laughs> right. we put ours there to, to secure their shores. Uh, I think that, yes, their investments are going to be dramatically ramped up in, in American protection. Because if you're talking about missile defense, this is something that started really with President Reagan. And this is actually a pretty big line item. It costs a lot of money to come up with a, a missile defense. I mean, if you're Raytheon, I mean, this is a good thing for Raytheon, right? But uh, it's also an important thing for our national defense. But it doesn't come cheap. And getting more foreign investment into this uh, to stop rogue regimes like the North Koreans and still like the Iranians, I don't think they're, they're out of the woods yet. Um, you know, this is John Easton. This is something that uh, would not be a bad part of uh, uh, an ask for Donald Trump to, to our allies. That's right. And remember, this was, it, it became Reagan's missile defense program, became a huge bargaining chip. Um, it was the single most important thing to the Russians, and I think that, or the Soviet Union back then, and I think now it's going to be a major piece for, um, for, the, for Putin and also for, uh, for China. Can I make one mention? I, I, I think that uh, around this table here at EFB, people like to watch this kind of stuff. I know I do, but I, I look at Christopher Brown when I say this. Over the last 13 days... SpaceX, headed by Elon Musk, has continued without flaw to launch satellites, resupply missions, and other things into space. And just yesterday, we finally got the launch of the Intelsat uh, 35E satellite. And it is remarkable at the pace with which Americans' dominance in space continues to be shown, even on a private basis. The North Koreans are firing pop rockets that are getting a lot bigger. They don't have anything on them. There's no sophistication to them beyond the basic engineering. And yet here we are in the United States doing the most remarkable things, Chris. A couple of years ago, I was uh, very fortunate to be invited by NASA to come out to Vandenberg Air Force Base to uh, attend a launch. It was for the NPP uh, Environmental Satellite Program. And to spend a couple of days with the Air Force guys who, who put these rockets in the air and the NASA guys who actually run the missions... These are some of the finest uh, military officers and scientists on the planet. And to see their professionalism and the toys they get to play with is incredible. And if you've never attended one, really, you got to go. Finally, on this, uh, I would also say to, to your points here about Vladimir Putin and the Chinese leadership, they don't really want us to put a lot more money into missile defense. So this is actually a great bargaining chip for President Trump that he's going to use. And I think this is somewhere where President Trump comes in and has a much better way to bargain with uh, President, uh, than President Obama, who basically wanted to get rid of all of our nuclear weapons. That was the thing he, he, he most desperately wanted to get rid of. Um, this is good for us and good for President Trump. It gives him a great way to bargain some stuff away, but also shows strength, something that Ronald Reagan did and something that President Obama never would, uh, Chris Brown. People often forget that, that our nuclear program is still thousands upon thousands of warheads, and other countries are, as well are, are depleting theirs too. But these are, are big, scary problems that we don't like to think about. You know, it's, think about my, our parents' generation. They ran drills where they would jump under the 
school desks to protect themselves from nuclear winter. We didn't do that. We had earthquake drills in California. But, uh, you know, these are, these are still terrifying things that, that we like to forget about, but we really can't. Uh, finally, before we go, I want to mention really quickly the Capitol Hill frame and photo. We are located directly above Capitol Hill frame and photo. Uh, we are, uh, Stuart is uh, the, the, the owner, proprietor. He's been around for a long time. They do an excellent job. John Easton, you've got some stuff done there. Um, tell us a little about your experience with dealing with Stuart and his team. It's a gem, and it may not serve food like some of the merchants around him, but it does just about everything else. You've got greeting cards, graduation cards. You have great frames, a, a selection that will blow you over, and their professional is professionalism is second to none. And I would say that uh, Jack Fury in the audience today, um, we were we were in the Capitol frame and photo, uh, and we saw Jack Fury's friends, the Cozneys, getting their um, their passport photos done. So they do all kinds of things at Capitol frame and photo. They've been excellent neighbors to us. Sometimes they get our mail. Uh, Adam Belmar, you know, have you been down there? Have you done any shopping down there? Have you gotten any frames done? I haven't had anything done down there yet, um, but uh, I know that they do have a very uh, warm relationship with their clientele. And I do believe, having talked to Stuart just yesterday, that the Johns, John Fury, John Easton, have uh, made some inquiries about replacing some of the beautiful frames that we have here with some Washington, D.C. images. And let me just be the first to tell you on the air, John, and John, that Stuart's got the images you're looking for. You should go down there and check them out. <laughs> he beckons you to do so. Well, uh, thank you all for listening to the Fury Theory Podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB is... Excellent for business. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs>